You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 778 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host. Brad Roland coming to you live on a Thursday evening into Friday morning. And most of today's episode will be NBA draft focused with PD Webb joining me. You can find him at Above the Break 3 on Twitter. Really, really smart guy and a fun discussion that we had on this podcast. But before we get to PD, a, uh, a bit of news actually on Thursday afternoon with regard to the Hawks and potential offseason activities. Jackie McMullen of ESPN reports that the NBA is, quote, closing in on signing off end quote, on a second bubble site in Chicago, with the eight teams not going to Orlando, potentially set to to participate in that. The reporting said that the site would be uh, basically for mini training camps and a, quote, subsequent games against other clubs, end quote. So there's at least that thought. So basically the framework broadly would be that summer league style event with some practice, some mini camps, and then potentially some games um, between the eight teams not going to Orlando. Originally, or I guess initially at this point in time, the reporting centers on September as the date and sort of range for that. Obviously, that's the whole month. We don't know exactly specifically what that what that will look like. That is uh, notably after the lottery and before the draft. Um, and uh, in the middle of that piece from Jackie Mack, she notes um, one of the discussion frame points was a two-week, ske- uh, sort of a two-week schedule of practices and then four games. And all of this at this point in time, is voluntary. Uh, no mandatory stuff in terms of uh, between the NBA and the Player Association has been agreed to. It's not impossible that could happen, but I'm going to assume this is going to be voluntary the whole way. I don't think the teams are going to have the ability to mandate players to show up to this, but we will see what happens along the line there. Um, some more some more details to hit on here. Um, the bubble will reportedly be created, if it is at all, at a substantial cost and it'll be split among the 30 teams, according to the ESPN reporting. Uh, lots of details to be hand, to sort of be hammered out at this point in time, but um, teams are also reportedly sort of split on this in some ways, and, and that's very unsurprising in a lot of ways. Uh, at least some of them are continuing to push for alternative plans that would enable them to hold mini camps within local markets, and then potentially um, then establishing a regional site or something like that for teams to be scrimmaging each other. That's not really new. We've, we've heard that along the way, but um, I would say this, there's far from uniform behavior on this bubble site. It could still happen, but you got eight teams going in eight, eight different directions. Um, the call apparently that um, sort of discussed all of this happened on Thursday with seven of the eight teams involved. The Knicks did not make it to the call. Um, part of that could be that you know there's been some buzz that the Knicks are not thoroughly on board with this kind of thing. At the same time, the reporting uh, indicated that the Knicks were interviewing head coaching candidates, which is obviously a little bit more important in some ways. Also, the Warriors are a team that's been um, not thrilled, at least uh, r- reportedly, with this kind of with, with, with this kind of thing. But uh, they reportedly agreed to participate, according to this piece from ESPN. Though uh, I would personally be shocked if we saw Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, that crew, but they could they could still they could still send a team to this without having to send the big guns. Um, at least one or two of the teams were quoted as saying that they would rather have their own mini camps instead of going to a bubble. Um, so basically, again, far from a certainty that games actually happen here. Also, there is the overriding question of the health and the pandemic and what where this should actually happen in terms of just the logistics. Um, Orlando is a you know a massive operation; it's cost lots of money, but Orlando has a uh, certainly a massive financial element here, whereas 
because this bubble could make some money. I'm sure that ESPN or TNT or someone someone would, would like to broadcast this thing, but uh, the money is not cl- is not quite as clear. Let's just say that. Also, there was a quote um, from a team official in this piece from ESPN saying. And I quote, a few of us would like to see how things go in Orlando, end quote. So uh, there's also some diverging paths on uh, how quickly this should be discussed. You know, I, you know the Hawks were talking about uh, wanting, wanting some timely answers uh, earlier in the month when they were talking about um, sort of their exit interview, stuff like that. It's been a few weeks now since then, but at the same time, you might want to wait and see how things go in Orlando. So lots of different competing interests. And also the last thing in terms of just the call itself, uh, sorry, the reporting itself from ESPN, in that, uh, in that report, um, it says that the league, the NBA, sought assurances from teams that they will actually send players if, if they move forward with the bubble. So obviously the NBA doesn't want to get caught sort of uh, flat-footed and have this whole set up and spend money to start getting it ready to go and then realize they don't have any players to send. So that's something that's up in the air. Um, from a Hawks-specific standpoint, Sarah Spencer of the AJC reported that the Hawks would be, quote, supportive of their guys getting the opportunity to play, end quote. That is not a surprise at all. The Hawks were famously sort of very much publicly on board with going to Orlando in the first place when they were uh, still before that decision was actually made. Also, Travis Schleck and Lloyd Pierce talked about this on their Zoom availability on June 10th and uh, both sort of discussed uh, lots of different things. We, co- we covered that um, at the time, but they were both very helpful, sorry, hopeful with quick answers, as I said, as I said before, and also talked about getting the ability to just kind of just get in the gym and the... Uh, you know, the presence of, of being a young team, there's, you know, at the time even we all said this, but the Hawks are kind of the epitome of a team that might want to get together and play because they are so young. They had this core in place and uh, having those guys come together and gel is a pretty good thing in terms of a development path. Uh, Schlenk also did note at that point in time on in uh, on June 10th that it gets tricky. That was the quote from him when talking about for, uh, penny for agents and what kind of rosters would be available. That's definitely the case. And I would like to add again by saying the MBPA is not has to sign off on anything that happens here. Player association has to be involved all the way through, and there's nothing mandatory that it's going to be looking at, uh, at least in my opinion. Mandatory events would be surprising to me at this point in time. So uh, getting, getting the roster together might be a challenge, and part of that um, comes from the ESPN story citing that Michelle Roberts is uh, steadfast right now that the non-bubble teams have to follow the same protocol as Orlando and Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, is backing her up on that. So we'll see if that we'll see if that bends at all. But uh, you know, obviously, it's very very thorough in Orlando, at least to the extent that they that they can. It's talking about lots of testing, lots of money, et cetera, et cetera. Also. There would obviously be questions. The Hawks do have several players under contract. You know, there are lots of free agents that would be certainly up and up in the air between Jeff Teague and Scalabessier and Travion Graham, etc. Those guys are being sort of a limbo situation. The guys under contract, um, you would think, would be more inclined to play, but still, that's not a given either. Consider this this might be again, uh, you know, optional slash, you know non-mandatory, however you want to say that. Um, I will say this, Trey Young sent a tweet. It seems like Trey wants to play. He always wants to play and loves to play, so they actually might let him do that. Um, the other young guys potentially even more likely to do that. Obviously, Clint Capella would be a big question mark, just whether he was playing games. And by the way, you could you could, you could have these guys play and practice without having them play games because, as we've seen on social media, up and down you know, across the league, these guys are going to play basketball right now um, in gyms, whether they're public or private. Uh, basketball is going to be played at this point in time, so practice stuff. What, what, that's kind of different than actually sanctioning games for your top-tier players like Young and John Collins. But at the same time, hey, practice will not be the worst thing in the world when you realize that they're already going to be playing games. The risk is not really any higher in terms of just the basketball part and the basketball injury part. Obviously, the COVID risk is something entirely different. Uh, so frankly, 
there is a, a lot of uncertainty here. Um, you know, people were asking about about incentives. Uh, I will say again, as I said before, uh, people were asking about the uh, potential for a tournament for the, for the number one overall pick. Um, uh, my stance is very clear on that. I think that's absolutely crazy. That that will never happen, in my opinion, because players don't care about that. But even this time around, the lottery is scheduled for August, and this is going to be, I guess, the reporting on this, I should say, is that this, this will be in September, so the lottery will already be handed down. Um, you know, incentives. I'm not really sure what they would be. It'll be more summer league style. Lots of summer league references in that piece from ESPN. So like, there's not really a quote unquote incentive for players in summer league. Um, I think you're gonna NBA's gotta have to realize that they probably already do know this that some of the top players are not gonna play. Um, the Warriors guys especially, but maybe even your Trey Youngs. I'm not sure that Trey will play. Um, he might. He might. We'll see what happens here if that if this all happens. But regardless, there's a lots of different things that have to be sorted out before before this actually happens. But it is the first sort of significant reporting from a very, very trustworthy national source like Jackie McMullen that this is going to be discussed. There was apparently discussions today. This is all about a, uh, a call today that happened with the NBA and the team. So we're getting closer potentially to answers on this. I know the Hawks would like to see that. And uh, overall, at least there is some hope for Hawks fans that want to see some participation from the team in some league sanctioned activity before the draft and before the free agency uh, timeline all hits. So there you go on that. Um, the big takeaway is that there is still a lot of uncertainty but uh, this is this is more than we knew yesterday, so there we go on that. Okay, before we get to my conversation with PD, a word from our, a word from our sponsor on today's podcast, and that is the good folks at RockAuto.com. With the ever increasing numbers of makes and models, it is now impossible to stock all the car and truck parts that you need in, in a traditional chain storefront. So why? endure often pointless and seemingly intimidating questioning and wait forever while the counter person orders the parts on his computer only to choose the brand that his warehouse happens to carry. Instead, you have access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. It's a much better option, whether it's for your classic car, your daily driver. Rockauto.com has everything you need. It's just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. Chain stores have different price tiers for pro mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, but at rockauto.com, prices are the same for everybody, and they are always the lowest prices possible. The rockauto.com catalog is also very easy to navigate. You'll quickly see all, all the price, all the parts available for your vehicle. You choose the brands, the specs, and the prices that you prefer. Rockauto.com is for everybody and does not require membership or an account login. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. So why would you spend up to twice as much for the same exact parts? Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Right locked on in their How Did You Hear About Us box so that they know that we sent you to rockauto.com. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. And now my conversation with PD Webb, who you can find at Above the Break 3 on Twitter. PD, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. How are you doing on this fine Thursday evening? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about some draft prospects. Yeah, it's, uh, it's our pleasure for sure. Um, and yeah, in, in general, we've been doing tons of NBA draft stuff as uh, I think all of the non-bubble teams are diving f- sort of headfirst in the draft. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about anyway. So uh, this is not the greatest class to have four extra months with. But at the same time, uh, I am probably better equipped than some people that cover one team to do this. So hopefully we will uh, navigate this and I appreciate you uh coming on uh it's it's funny i asked you to come on and i was excited about this and uh, actually uh you proposed a good idea and what i thought um is a good way to sort of break down the prospects we're talking about because in general we're going to kind of cover all of the realistic i would say or at least some some realistic options for the hawks with their own lottery picks so we're not going to go too deep today just the kind of guys in the top you know 10 12 um 
but you had a good idea to put those guys in sort of like quadrants. So I want to let you actually tee up what you uh, sort of what your process is on that. Yeah. So um, from ten thousand feet uh, observing the uh, Atlanta rebuild, I kind of get the drive by and a lot of discourse on what Atlanta thinks about or what Atlanta fans think about uh, the rebuild and what exactly they have on their hands. And I feel like there's four distinct categories. Um, if you want to imagine a, uh, four quadrant, uh, political alignment chart, I'm a huge nerd. So this is how my brain works. Uh, in the top left corner, you'd have, uh, you know, or on the X axis, you would have, you know, <laughs> sorry about that. On the X axis, you would have impact on the far left being now on the far right being later. And on the Y axis, the top, you'd have bad, the top, you'd be good. So the first quadrant would be the idea of Atlanta has one contributor for its next playoff run right now. They're bad now. They need to draft somebody who will play all the time to be a secondary creator next to Trey. On the top right quadrant, you'd uh, have bad later because you'd have two contributors. You know, maybe it's a big, maybe you really believe in one of the wings, but this is, you know, a quadrant that would belong to people who are probably going to be the third or, best, best, third or fourth best player on the Atlanta's next playoff team. Going to the bottom left, you'd have three contributors or good and need them to play now so this would probably be people who believe in best fit available and the bottom corner you think you'd have four current players on this Atlanta Hawk roster that are going to be starters or major contributors on the next playoff team you just take best player available yeah so basically it's kind of a you know what are you what are you wanting from out of this pick and obviously this is this is very difficult to do under normal circumstances, then we're also doing it before the lottery. So obviously the range is a little bit different if you go from having number one pick to seven, where they could where they could they could fall to seven or eight um, in theory. But uh, in general, it's you know what he what you, what you just laid out. It's uh, you know whether, whether you're drafting for fit, whether you're drafting for um, you know best player available, whether you're drafting for you know wings that can help you right away, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is kind of interesting in a way to uh, file these guys available because it's. I mean, I should ask you this before we even dive in. Do you subscribe to the to the sort of overarching notion in this draft that it's kind of flat? Um, I know that it's not the most star-studded at the top, but uh, do you have, I guess, how do you view this top 10 or 12? Is, is this a uh, out-of-the-ordinary flat for you, or is it a situation where you kind of you have defined tiers? Uh, I would say that this is a draft that is more fit-based long-term um, than any draft probably since like 2013. Um, where the third best player in this draft might get picked 14th overall. The third best player in this draft might get picked 7th overall. It just depends on where people go and to what team needs they fall into. Um, so in that respect, other than, you know, LaMelo and Killian, which to me are the two standouts of this draft, um, beyond that, there's this, this huge plateau of guys who are super interesting, depending on what you're looking for and depending on your team construction going forward. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's something I probably need to do a better job of explaining to in general is, you know, I think I I think everyone kind of understands this in, on some level. But, you know, where you get drafted really matters. It's not, you know, everybody has their big board that's sort of in a vacuum. Um, I often tailor my big board um, differently for the Hawks because of, you know, team factors. And it's not only 
like who's who's already on the roster, but it's also you know what systems do they run? What you know all, all this kind of stuff matters, and it really matters where you land in this class. I think uh, I think I agree with you that it matters more for a lot of these guys where they end up going because. And actually, I heard you uh, do sort of a deep dive on the Pro to Pro podcast about this kind of topic in general that I really enjoyed, um, and that's worth a listen if everybody has not heard that. Um, those guys are fun, um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting to think about where certain guys um, would be maximized and where they wouldn't be, especially, you know, recently I had Sam Bassini on the show and he kind of just casually mentioned, not in a reporting kind of way, but that the Hawks are, that uh, he's hearing the Hawks might be interested in Isaac Okoro, for instance, which is, which sort of caused a bit of a firestorm and um, people start talking about, you know, what, what what's Okoro going to be like? And it's like, well, this, this is very important to, he's a guy I, I think that fits this archetype as well. Uh, that's very different in different places, uh, depending on what you ask him to do. So that's a good uh, sort of primer, I think. Uh, I guess, but I, you know what? I'm, I'm going to leave it up to you. Dior's choice uh, of where you want to start, because uh, it was it was your idea. So we should uh, we should dive into one of these quadrants. Um, I think that the one that people are most interested in, and the one that um, is probably the most controversial, is the idea that Atlanta only has one contributor. So the top left corner of our quadrant. Um, and these would be the guys who are, you know, small time primaries or large, uh, creation secondaries, uh, to go alongside Trey. Uh, the first name on there is going to be LaMelo Ball. Uh, he averaged, you know, 19 and a half points a game, 8.8 ish rebounds, eight assists, uh, almost no blocks and 1.8 steals per 36 in Australia across 13 games, I believe. Um, He's somebody that has been on radar since, you know, he was a middle schooler playing in high school events uh, in Chino Hills. Uh, electric passer, 6'6", uh, 6'7", six, 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 uh, skinny guy, but is capable of really reading a defense, uh, really getting into passing lines. It's just uh, an electric player with the ball. Yeah, I mean, Mello, <laughs> I think, is – it's kind of funny. Early in this process uh, – I'm not sure he was a consensus number one by any means. And I think he's not still consensus number one. But I think if uh, after all this time, if you look at most of the boards that are publicly available that are, you know, trusted sources, he is number one in as many or more than anybody else in my experience. That's not always been the case. But uh, it's especially, as you'd, you'd imagine, this has been a talking point now because uh, I actually had a, a first overall pick in a mock draft that I did uh, on this podcast and uh, ended up taking Melo. And I don't think it's a no-brainer for the Hawks. Um, I have him number one on my board in an an overall sense, but because of the factors in place here, it's not exactly um, a perfect fit, I don't think. But also, if you just buy him, uh, it's also interesting as well. So what do you make of the fit in Atlanta, obviously, and then uh, just about Melo in general? Because, you know, people are, I think, higher on him now than they were previously, but at the same time, not, not everybody's all in. Um, I mean, I'm one of the people who I grew up in California, so I've watched a lot of LaMelo Ball from a really young age. So his shot selection is a little less jarring to me than it probably is to other people. Um, but I think the fit in Atlanta is super interesting. Um, Trey is going to be a heliocentric creator and LaMelo has proven to be somebody that can read defenses extremely quickly. Um, he can get open shots for Trey off ball, which is something that uh, I know has been an emphasis for both coaching staff and fans over the past year. Um, I think that the defensive fit is going to be uh, problematic, to, to put it lightly. 
Um, but Melo is somebody who, when he's been asked to defend and held to standards, um, which was kind of for the first time when he was in Australia, um, there are flashes of somebody who reads uh, offenses and is able to make rotations. Um, it's few and far between, but this is somebody who's really learning defense for the first time this year. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I was lower on his defense early on. I, I'm still not 100% convinced on his defense. And next to Trey, you have to have, you know, there's a level you have to get to where it's going to be really bad. But I, I kind of buy it more now. Um, it's hard to, it's sort of hard to articulate why. Part of it is just size. He has enough of it where he can play. And I think uh, his off ball feel is pretty good overall. I think that should translate. And, but he's in a, he's incredibly difficult defensive evaluation. He's in a difficult evaluation overall because of how weird uh, all the places that he has played have been. But defensively, especially, like, you know, that he was basically never asked to play defense until, like you said, until this year. And even then, that's a fairly small sample size. I, I do buy it, but uh, I understand people that don't. Um, and that um, if you don't buy his defense, it becomes even harder to um, project him alongside Trey because, you know, I, I think there's there's questions about Kevin Herter next to Trey Young for the same reason defensively. And I think Kevin Herter is a, uh, a safer defensive prospect than LaMelo. Not that Herter's going to be great. But uh, I don't think he's going to be a disaster. I think there are moments of him as well. But uh, regardless, it's always going to be a focal point next to Trey Young. Um, whether it should be or not, maybe is a different question. But people are always going to say, "Can you play next to Trey Young?" And uh, on on defense, obviously. And I think you know Melo. I think has enough to get to where he's just fine or better defensively. But that's not a lock in my mind. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think the other uh, misconception with Lamelo is the shooting numbers. Um, there's an idea that he's a bad shooter, um, which if you just look at the the raw percentages, like is true. But when you you know go into the the line by line breakdown um, in synergy, it's uh, you know catch and shoot uh, unguarded still 69th percentile, which is very good. Uh, unguarded 59th percentile, good. Um, three point all three point jumpers, he's in the lower percentile uh, at around 30. Um, but there's the visual component of his jumper, which, you know, there's still adjustments to be made. And what's showing up on the stats are two different things. And I think separating the uh, the eye test from just like broad based numbers, especially when broad based numbers involve a lot of shooting off the dribble, um, is something that people look watching LaMelo for the first time have to keep in mind. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think. If you just look at his numbers and assume that's the shooter he is, I would not uh, advise that. I think you can certainly question how good of a shooter he is, but uh, relying on the numbers from Australia is, is that's perilous. I think, and I think part of it that's it's a good indicator in my mind is that he'll he'll shoot he'll shoot them. He's aggressive. It's this is not a, this is not a non-shooter. I can't remember where I heard this, um, but someone was comparing him to Ricky Rubio, and I just wanted to scream like Ricky just wouldn't shoot and. I've always liked Ricky Rubio in general, just as a caveat, but uh, LaMelo does not have that problem. He is not shy. He will shoot, and that's that's half the battle. It's not all of it. Eventually, you got to make shots, but uh, I, I don't really worry too much about LaMelo as a shooter. Like, is he going to be great as a shooter? Probably not, I would say. Maybe not, but I, I don't I don't see it as a huge problem um, in a vacuum. Yeah, I think the other reason that the Ricky Rubio comparison falls short is that, like, Ricky Rubio has a fine handle, Um but LaMelo has probably the best handle in the class. Um, it looks a little idiosyncratic at times, but like it's so strange that it really works. 
um, you know, a lot of people try to get into his waistline and he's able to get hang dribbles to move horizontally um, to really shift them off guard and then explode past. And at six, seven, um, you know, having that kind of handle with that kind of diversity uh, gives smaller guards trouble. For sure. And it's, uh, I think not, most people think of handle and they think of small guards and Lamelo is not small. That's, that's my anecdotal observation. I think I totally agree with you. I think his handle is really special, especially for the size, but uh, you don't often hear uh, guys praised for their handle that are as big as he is. It's kind of funny. Um, some of the, some of the conceptions people have, but I, I totally agree. His handle is very good and I don't worry about that at all. Um, We'll probably come back to Mello, but I want to make sure we touch on other guys, and we can talk about Mello forever. Uh, so uh, you you made you made a comment earlier um, that you kind of have I think you I think I heard this anyway that you kind of have Mello and Killian Hayes uh, sort of you know as the as the top two in some way. Um, did I hear that right? A and B. Uh, what do you what do you make of Killian Hayes? Because he's someone I think obviously fans have just heard about a lot less and seen a lot less because he a wasn't as famous as Lamelo and b of course did not play college basketball. Yeah, um, I would say, especially for the Hawks, Killian is in that, you know, uh, alpha tier with, with LaMelo. Um, Killian's a lefty from France, um, almost 19 years old, uh, 16.8 points a game, four rebounds, 7.8 assists, 0.4 blocks, two steals per 36. Uh, he's about 6'5". Uh, he's a left hand, like he's left-handed, but he's like extra left-handed. Uh, he's a guy who's can be at times afraid to even attempt right-handed layups. Um, there's the D'Angelo Russell uh, comparison that gets thrown out a lot, um, which I think is pretty fallacious because uh, Killian's in a different level as an athlete. Killian can get to the rim. Killian has pop in and out of his moves. Um, and that's something that's really developed in the past year. Killian really uh, exploding in and out uh, with the ball in his hands. Um, whereas D'Lo kind of glides around. Um, there's obviously an aesthetic similarity, but putting a, you know, a second guard, uh, high with Trey, you know, somebody who also has concerns with their shooting. Um, but putting a, a second guard high with Trey who can run pick and roll, um, who is, you know, as good at being the primary or the secondary, um, has floater touch. Like this is, uh, this is a, a very high level prospect who's been on NBA radars for a really long time. I, I also like Killian. Um, I took him actually in a different mock draft um, at three or four and got some surprised reactions from Hawks fans, and I'm, I wasn't 100% sure. Well, I, I guess it's because, you know, he is a quote-unquote point guard in some people's mind, and um, he has that ability. But um, I think he can and would fit next to Trey pretty well. Um, I, I want to know, know what you think about this as well, but um, I like his, especially his off-ball defense. I think he fills the game really well. Um, he's not huge, but he's not small. Like, he's got plenty of size next to Trey as well. And the jump shot is not a, not a lock by any means, but, I you know, he's, he's come a long way with it. And what I have seen, I will uh, be candid, I have not seen him as much as the college guys just for, you know, lack of availability sometimes. But um, I've still seen him more and more in the last – couple of months and I continue to like him even more as I watch him which is good but uh I kind of believe in the jump shot I'm not sure it's going to be awesome but again something I don't I don't worry about a ton I think it can be functional but uh what do you what do you think about the jumper in general like where it gets to and uh, also defensively next to Trey uh I think the defensive fit is uh good I mean it's always encouraging when you have 18 year olds playing competent competent defense at a professional level 
Um, Killian, somebody who's been a pro for multiple years now and has the European approach to uh, schematic defense where, you know, there's because there's so much horizontal movement, because there's so many actions within a half court set, um, you really have to be on your toes at all times. And while he does fall asleep occasionally, um, overall, I feel like the uh, the physical development that's happened in the past year um, has also really helped his ability to slide, his ability to uh, reattach when people get a half step. Um, and that's something that I think is going to continue to uh, fill out as he gets into an NBA weight, uh, weight training program. He still has a good frame to pack on even more weight, to pack on even more explosiveness. Um, for the jumper, he, he also um, shoots. Um, his three-point attempt rate is like 0.36. So that's 36% of his shots are threes. Um, the percentage is around 30%. But again, another person who shoots a lot off the dribble. Um, and shoots a lot off the dribble going towards his left where he's a little weaker. He's stronger going to his right uh, by a pretty dramatic margin. I believe it's 20 percentage points. Um, but this is also a player who will, you know, fans are thinking, oh, okay, we got another point guard who can't shoot. Looking at the free throw percentage, it's around 88%. And the history of guys who take a good amount of threes, who have good touch on floaters and shoot free throw percent free shoot free throws at a very high clip at a young age is really encouraging. So while he may not be a, a finished product as far as a shooting point guard or a shooting guard with the ball in their hands, this is somebody who can, you know, is going to bloom on the timeline with Trey. Totally agree. Um I'm I'm a big fan of Hayes. I think that can actually work. Um is there I think I know the answer to this, but is there is there anybody else in that sort of quadrant um, that you want to discuss. I think I can already hear people uh, in my ear right now talking about Anthony Edwards because he is a, a local product and he is uh, often, I would say most of the time, uh, discussed in that sort of top three range and as someone who can be uh, more of a lead option offensively. Do you uh, do you view him in that in that similar way? Kind of how do you, how do you feel about Anthony Edwards? Um, I would say that Anthony Edwards is in the plateau of uh, <laughs> the next group of guys. Um, I don't think that that's anything. Uh, against ant um who's you know uh, a hell of a prospect uh 6'5 225 you know almost exactly the same age as mellow and uh and killian as luck would have it uh 20 points a game six rebounds 3.1 assists 0.6 blocks 1.5 steals for 36 georgia um i just think that with ant he's gonna need the ball in his hands to develop his feel um and that's not necessarily a guarantee of something that's going to happen uh next to trey or you know next to Trey and, you know, whether it's Cam, whether it's Herter, uh, whether it's John Collins, like the route for a player who needs to develop their feel on a cr- in a crowded potential backcourt is one that I don't particularly buy developmentally. Um, and I don't think that that's anything against Edwards as a prospect, but I think that's more the with the situation that the Hawks have, he may not be the best um fit for their developmental uh, scheme and I have a a pet theory about bringing hometown products home uh, for you know their first NBA draft stop it's an incredibly difficult uh, situation to put on you know a teenager and one that doesn't always have great results yeah on one hand I I kind of like it for Edwards I kind of like it to going to Atlanta, if only because I don't really buy him as a number one lead guy, and in Atlanta he wouldn't have to be that. But on the other hand, uh, what you said makes a ton of sense to me in that you know it is crowded. Uh, the feel is his basketball IQ is about his basketball feel is not 
what you want right now. And he is very young. It could certainly improve, but um, it's a red flag um, at the very least. And, you know, the shot selection especially is a part of that. And defensively, the tools should the tools are not bad, but um, obviously, you know, he's a great athlete. But I, I don't think that, uh, to put it, to put it mildly, it's not been very good defensively. So if you put all that, put all those factors together, I both understand the um, public Edward type, and I also feel like I try to push back against it a little bit um, as an overall thing. But do you does that make sense? Does that, does that make any sense to you? Like the fact that if I'm Edwards, I understand that I'm probably going to be a top three pick, and that means usually I'm going to get a lot of reps on the ball. But I, I really think that he needs to go somewhere where he is not the number one guy. Yeah, it's sort of a um, a double-edged sword where you want them to get reps to how I feel, but you don't want them to get so many reps that they're dependent on and develop bad habits. Like, it's one of those things that, you know, it seems really easy until you're the one to allocating the minutes, the reps, and the responsibility for winning in the short term. Um, and I think that's the danger of sort of Edward's archetype, which is that he's sort of a one in a two's body who can't really defend ones on defense, but isn't truly fit against, you know, bigger wings. It's a, it's a messy fit that I don't think that the shot making, the playmaking and, um, and defensive chops quite align in a way that I would be comfortable with, uh, with a top three or top five pick. I mean, if there's a circumstance where things fall or Edwards or the pick falls or Edwards falls, then I can sort of understand it from uh, an asset allocation uh, process, but I just don't see this as um, for what's most likely going to be the Hawks last time picking this high. I don't see this as the proper home run, home run swing. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think there's there's a spot where you just do it, but I don't think necessarily it's as likely that he'll still be there in that spot. So uh, I'm with you. Um, before we get to a bunch of other guys, I want to stop for a second and hear from the sponsors on today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by the folks at Magic Spoon. Growing up eating cereal was a no-brainer for me before school. It was a big part of my diet beyond that. Eventually, though, I had to give it up for the most part with one of the big reasons being that the cereals that I ate were full of sugar and stuff that you honestly shouldn't be eating. That isn't an issue with Magic Spoon, though. With zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only three net grams of carbs in each serving, there are four amazing flavors to choose from, from cocoa to fruity, frosted, and blueberry. And honestly, the taste is almost too good to be true, especially with my personal favorite in the blueberry flavor. Magic Spoon is also keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And to check out Magic Spoon, go to magicspoon.com slash NBA to, to, and grab a, a variety pack to try today. And also from there, be sure to use the promo code NBA at checkout to get free shipping. Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash NBA. Use the code NBA for free shipping. That's magicspoon.com dot com slash nba today's show is also brought to you by the good folks at blinkist it's hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more well, you don't have the free time. You can't read or work on your personal development. There is an incredible app, though, that solves that problem. It's one of the ultimate life hacks, and I absolutely recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. It takes the best key takeaways from thousands of nonfiction books and brings them down in just 15 minutes that you can just read or you can listen to. That is huge for busy people like you who want to get the main points of a book in a hurry so you can start using that information right away and effectively. With its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy for you to finish your book during a commute, 
on your lunch break or even while you're exercising. 12 million people are already using Blinkist right now. It has a massive growing library that features all kinds of varied offerings. Blinkist has the latest titles from bestsellers and also the classic nonfiction options that you always meant to read, but you can never actually find the time to open. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to the entire library, all the books you want, and all for one low price. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist is a special offer for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash MBA to try it free for seven days. Save 25% off a new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash MBA to start a seven-day free trial. And from there, you also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash MBA. All right, we're back. And uh, again, I'm going to go dealer's choice on you and uh, let you dictate the conversation in a way that I don't normally do. So feel honored about that. But uh, which which quadrant do you want to hit next? Uh, let's move on to, to top right quadrant, which would be two contributors on the Atlanta Hawks for their next playoff team. Um, and I'm actually going to jump to uh, another local guy. Uh, let's talk about Isaac Okoro. Yeah, let's do it. People are very excited about Isaac Okoro, especially recently. I, I'm telling you, as soon as people heard that the Hawks are uh, reportedly having uh, having interest in Okoro, I got a I, I got a sudden uptick in Okoro uh, love around me. So that was interesting. Yeah, uh, Isaac Okoro is a, a longtime favorite of mine. Uh, he didn't lose a high school or college basketball game for like what 18 months. Uh, it's really hard not to like a guy like that. Uh, we're talking about you know six six, 230 pound. Freshman from Auburn, uh, 14.7 points, 5.1 rebounds, 2.3 assists, a block, and a steal per 36. Um, Okoro is is built like a Humvee. Um, defender, you know, the winning reputation. Um, a really high effort guy who, you know, continually makes winning plays. Um his shooting is going to be the obvious concern. Um, a lot of people bring up that, you know, he shot 28, 28% from three on three attempts per 36 minutes, which is not great. Um, my counterpoint has always been half of his shots are free throws. Um, and it doesn't matter if you can't shoot, if no one can stop you from getting to the rim. Uh, he takes five and a half free throws a game at 68% uh, clip. I just think that this is um, if you're going to bet on a defender, um, if you're going to bet on, you know, somebody who can rotate between ones, you know, mid-level ones, twos and bigger threes. Um, he doesn't have the length for, you know, the, the cool eyes of the world, but he's strong. He's going to be an excellent defender from day one. He's going to contribute towards a winning culture. And he's just a smart player in every way. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's well said. I, I'm I've also been a big fan. It, it it's kind of funny. Um, I was high on a Coro. I don't do a ton of pre college scouting, but I do a little bit as much as I possibly can. And I was I felt like I was really high on him compared to the consensus or at least the the major consensus early on in the year. And then um, at one point, or at least I don't know, maybe at some point along the way, I know ESPN had him like in the top three I want to say at one point and I was like whoa this is getting a little bit out of control at times but I, I still really like Okoro uh, for all the reasons that you just mentioned I, I think his his feel especially like when you contrast it to someone like Anthony Edwards his feel is uh, impressive and I think defensively there's just a ton to like I wish he was 6'8 instead of 6'6 six, six. but other than that that's kind of the only thing that you can say other than jump shot um, what do you think about the feel here because 
Okoro is often discussed as a guy who needs to be in a particular situation. Um, Atlanta may not be the perfect offensive spot for him on paper because it is so heliocentric with Trey as, you know, the sun, the sun, the moon, the stars. But at the same time, Okoro fits in a lot of gaps and is smart and knows how to play. So what do you make of how he would look uh, alongside these guys? I mean, there's a, a larger question about team building um, to be had here, which is how many wings is too many? Yep. And um, I think the answer is when you have all of them. Like, it's a worst-case <laughs> scenario. Um, Atlanta could just go to the Dortmund model where you you take all the young, exciting attacking players, in this case, you know, wings with the thing that there's more scarcity of, and if, you know, one or two of them get hot, you can always parlay them into a star. Like, you can never have too many wings. You can never have too many developmental wings. And if one of them hits, you now have the most, the largest asset in the league in terms of value and in terms of value in terms of trades. Um, I think Okoro could be a fantastic fit, um, especially if you have faith in Atlanta's developmental process. Um, I feel like a feather in this idea or a feather in the cap of this idea, you know, would be Cam's second half of the season where he really turned it around. Um, I know some of that's injury injury related, but that just seemed like a whole different guy um, in terms of his approach, in terms of, um, you know, his tweaks. yeah, I think um, it's interesting. You know, before Lloyd Pierce got here, um, there was this Hawks University um, moniker that that they earned. They did a really good job um, under Budenholzer and with Kenny Atkinson and Quinn Snyder on that staff and Darvin Ham and all kinds of great assistants. Taylor Jenkins, all these guys are head coaches other than Darvin, who should be a head coach. Um, they had obviously had a great staff and they got a lot of credit for it. I think. I think Lloyd Pierce and Melvin Hunt and Mar- Marlon Garnett and those guys, I think I trust the Hawks' infrastructure to develop guys. Um, and, you know, to be fair, we haven't seen them. It's only a two-year sample. But given what we've seen from all of the young guys, essentially, uh, you know, Trey's improvement, obviously a lot of that is himself, but he's been, uh, I think, developed quite well. John Collins has made huge strides. You mentioned Cam. Um, I think, you know, they've, they've, there's a lot of success stories within that, even though it's a small sample size of two years. And I, I do overall just trust the infrastructure uh, to develop young players, uh, starting with Lloyd Pierce and, and on down. So that, that's definitely a, uh, an encouragement here and I think you know the point about wings is a good one and that I always say that too you can't have too many wings and according defensively like you know that's you could argue that maybe that's kind of the defensive thing that the Hawks don't have still you know Cam is Cam is very good defensively and was really impressive this year uh, DeAndre Hunter I think has ability in the future to be that kind of uh, in, you know really important and useful defensive player but Okoro might be there just like take someone out of the game kind of guy if they were to draft him uh, in a way that, you know, kind of lets you, you kind of let Reddish roam a little bit. Uh, you still have Hunter if you want to sort of match up against those like bigger, you know, 6'8 to 6'9 kind of wings if you wanted to use that and his, his versatility. But Okoro might just be able to just like take people out of games. Yeah, and I think that... I apologize, there's some uh, fireworks going on it's outside. All right. It's all right. <laughs> Just some uh, local color here. It, it, it uh, is July 4th weekend. We're all right here. Um, I think that having a Coro with the idea that he'll be a wing stopper uh, is a valuable idea. But I think for a successful team, all that you really need is guys who you can throw multiple looks at. So, you, you know, maybe it's fam, Cam, five possessions. Maybe it's Herder, two possessions. You go to Coro, four possessions. And then, you know, switch in Hunter. Like, that is a route to go from a team that 
is truly competent is that yeah. they have multiple wing defenders. And, you know, there's really no answer for somebody like LeBron or Kawhi. But what you can do is give multiple options so that way when they adjust, you counter adjust. And going from a team that's, you know, a top end lottery team to a team fighting for playoff contention, it's just being able to have multiple pathways towards success. Totally agree. Um, and Okoro is someone we're definitely going to keep talking about as we go here, but he's a, a very interesting player and one that uh, I think the shooting, oh, the last thing I guess I'll ask you about, how much of a big deal is the shooting? Because that's something that everyone's going to talk about with good reason. It, it's a question mark, but do you worry a ton about that? And what happens, uh, almost more importantly, what happens if he doesn't become an average shooter? Like, what, what happens if he is a career 30% three-point shooter that uh, may not be like a total non-shooter, but may not be a, an actual threat there? I think that there are signs for encouragement. Um, when I did the the big breakdown on Okoro, I think that his form is generally positive. Uh, he made a number of tweaks to it uh, as the season went on that I really liked. Um, he still has some bad misses, um, but this is you know, somebody who wasn't considered a top 50 RSCI player um, who's catapulted himself into the you know 12th, 15th, you know depending on who you talk to, most interesting uh, prospect fifth at one point this year. So that development arc has to be considered on his shooting. Um, what happens if he doesn't shoot? Then he's a small ball four. Um, you short roll him. Uh, he's a good passer against a tilted defense, something that Atlanta is going to see until, you know, Trey stops putting on an Atlanta uniform. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is somebody who has multiple pathways to success. So yes, the shooting may be a concern. And then, you know, with the free throw rate, like there are a lot of circumstances where people, you know, trapped the ball with Auburn and then Isaac Crow got a running start at the rim. And that does not go well. If you're the person in between Isaac Crow and the rim. No, it, it does not. I think that's uh, something that is uh, very underrated at this moment nationally about a is that he, uh, the free throw rate obviously, and just the way that he can, he can create, uh, this is not someone who is a stick him in the corner three and D prospect. He's got a lot of, uh, equity on the ball that is useful, especially if you get him going in the right situations, going downhill and using that burst and that physicality that he has. So, yeah, I look forward to uh, diving in even more. I've watched a ton of him, but uh, even more between now and uh, when we get to finally, when we finally get to the draft. Um, in that same sort of uh, quadrant around here, I think the guy that he's often put next to, at least in my conversations, is Devin Vassell, um, who is, they're very different players, but uh, positionally similar and uh, sort of similar ranges in what you normally see on on, uh, on mock drafts and however, however much that matters. Those guys are usually uh, pretty close to each other. What do, you, what do you make of Devin Vassell? Devin Vassell doesn't get the hometown kid treatment. He, he's also a hometown kid. I mean, he didn't, uh, it's interesting. It's, uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Atlanta flavor in this draft. Yeah, Sewanee, Georgia's not close enough to get the, the banners come out for Devin Vassell? Uh, it's funny. Uh, I will say this. I know that, but you don't hear it as much. As funny as that is, it's, you definitely hear it about Edwards probably the most because he played college here in Georgia as well. And Okoro, get, Okoro gets it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of hilarious how little you hear about Devin Vassell being a local product, <laughs> despite him actually being a local product. So that's actually a, it's kind of a funny point now that you mention it. I mean, I, I think I have a really good reason why. I mean, Devin Vassell was a two-star. Uh, uh, why? Yeah. His other offers are like UIC. I think he had four offers when he entered FSU, and FSU with probably like one of the three best coaching staffs in America saw him was like, "That's the guy." Uh, they were telling everyone who would listen that Devin Vassell was going to be, you know, a top-end lottery guy before the season started. 
and uh, you know, six seven, uh, one ninety. Uh, he's a you know a two three, uh, probably closer to a three than a two. Um, really, a player who has developed in their time at, uh, in college. He did two years. Um, didn't start a single game his freshman year, but was still getting draft buzz from from deep draft nerds for somebody who shot you know forty percent from from three. This year he shot forty one percent. He improved across the board and pretty much. You know, uh, every meaningful statistic involving ball skills. Uh, incredible defender. Uh, does not make mistakes. Um, a fun Devin Vestel stat is that he has more career-made threes, assists, steals, blocks than turnovers. Not combined. <laughs> like every individual one of those stats. He has more career-made threes than turnovers, more assists than turnovers, more steals than turnovers, and more blocks than turnovers in a two-year college career in the ACC. Like, this is somebody who really, really knows how to play basketball, really, really knows how to play defense. Um, he can at times look a little bit vanilla. Um, but, you know, he developed the ability to shoot, you know, pump fake, one dribble, uh, jumpers. Uh, he ran pick and roll. He makes good reads. They're not super incisive. Um, you know, Florida State generally rolls out, you know, three super wings, a small guard and, you know, a big or two bigs, depending um, and he consistently made stuff happen. Uh, his, his offensive rating was 126 for the year and defensive rating was 93. Like it is insane how good Def Vassell was this year at Florida state. Um, somebody that if you are a believer in, um, you know, this sort of developmental curve from somebody who, you know, was not a lauded prospect at all at high school to somebody who became a knockdown shooter, albeit with a little bit of a funky form. Um, who has developed ball skills, who is a great defender, you know, despite being a little bit skinny, um, then you're really in for a, a guy who is a straight up floor raiser with the potential to unlock, you know, a uh, small sample size starhood a la uh, Chris Middleton, which is the name you hear probably most often. Yeah, that's, that's a good, it's a good one. I think Vassell is for all the reasons you just mentioned, especially the, the decision making and the fact that he doesn't make mistakes and his defensive chops, like he seems safe, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Um, I, I like Devin Vassell a lot. Like I feel like I almost should like Devin Vassell more because of what I usually prioritize, and you know his defense is really fun. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I'm a little bit skeptical of his offensive upside. I I hear you. It actually makes a lot of sense when you lay it out that way in terms of what um, his development track has been and how he's gone a long way in a small period of time. And I do buy the jump shot. I don't worry too much about the form. I think it's going to go in and be just fine. Um, Then I guess the, the skeptical argument against Vassell would be that he's kind of just a, maybe he just becomes like a pretty bland three and D option. And that's not a bad thing in the world that those guys are still very, very valuable. As you can see with contracts, um, you know, if you, if you have a guy who is his size, who can shoot it at a high thirties clip from three uh, on decent volume and then play defense the way that he can, even if there isn't much more on the offense and there still could be, like you mentioned, even if there isn't anything else in the offense, that's still a good player, especially with where he's probably going to go. So I, I have no argument against Devin Vassell. Like he's he's very fun. Um, him and Akora are very different, and I think based on what I've heard lately, Hawks fans seem to be leaning in the Akora direction out of those two guys. But you can't really go wrong with either of them. I, I like both prospects quite a bit. I think I like Vassell a touch more, um, which hurts me deeply to say. 
because <laughs> as an as an Akoro as, as an Akoro enthusiast that you are, yeah. Um, I mean, like it's hard to say how good Devin Vassell is at defense. Um, a thing that happened when I uh, watched a you know for the for the Vassell breakdown was that he had a lot of steals that he overshot. He predicted it too much and got there too early, and the ball just kind of goes <laughs> underneath his arm because it's like the ball sort of bounced at his elbow. Um, I think that the three most valuable archetypes in the NBA are, you know, a, a primary in whatever in whatever form you have them, um, especially if they can shoot, um, a true wing four and a three and D wing. And there's a chance that Vassell could fall into, you know, a true wing four or a three and D wing. And if the worst case scenario is that he's one of the three most valuable archetypes at a, you know, a career like four oh seven, I think, uh, three point shooting clip like that's. That is not something that raises your floor. That's something that just makes you a playoff team. Just having players like that make you a playoff team. And if you value, if you believe in your player development staff and you think that you can add more creation onto it, onto somebody who doesn't make mistakes, who has a history of you know development on their own, um, who has learned how to absorb more usage and who has been scalable depending on lineup, like that's a player that seems drag and drop in a way that a lot of the other Hawks aren't. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the arguments, not even just the Hawks, just in general about Vassell is that he, I think he fits basically anywhere for what you just said. Like, there are no teams that can't use another guy like Devin Vassell. Like, that doesn't really exist. You could, obviously, there are other teams that, uh, in the lottery, that probably need to be need to be looking for primaries in a way the Hawks are not, which make which probably makes him even more valuable to the Hawks because they have their primary. But every single team in the league can use a, can use another player like Devin Vassell, like like he could be. So uh, the plug and play aspect there is real. Yeah, I just think with Vassell, um, there is a tendency to think of him as a. Uh, like a boring prospect in a way that like, because it's defense, because it's Florida state, because they sort of just do this like flying uh, death machine thing. Um, I would suggest people who may have a little more like, Oh, he's not that exciting of a guy. There's not that much upside here to watch the Virginia tech game um, where he, I think he makes four off the dribble threes, including two step backs in a seven for seven from three performance. Uh, Absolutely annihilating Virginia tech. Uh, that's a game that you don't have that many more, you know, uh, high three-point attempt. It's just not how Florida State gets down. I think you only have four games above five threes in a, uh, across the season. Yeah. And when you see that sort of uh, shot creation from a guy who's just learning how to do that, there's so much more that could be untapped. And plugging that in next to, you know, if you're just getting more as many bites at the apple for six seven plus guy who can shoot and wants to shoot off the dribble like you're getting to a place where one of them will eventually hit and your player development staff will eventually turn one of them into the proper piece next to Trey. yeah i i believe uh and i think i've actually watched the game you're talking about if if a cell can, can channel that it, it gets kind of scary because uh, florida state to your point you know people have Florida State's been good for a long time. Leonard Hamilton's very good at his job. Um, but the, it's a difficult environment for especially a casual observer to try to figure out because the numbers don't pop to you offensively. And defense, uh, as I, I am a defensive enthusiast, I'm sure people are there listening to this podcast for laughing because I, I love defense and in a way that most people do not. Um, but Florida State, uh, just they always have 100 guys who are 6'10", and they're incredibly long, and it's just funny to watch them. But, yeah, Vassell's got a lot of talent. It's not. This is not a uh, – I'm sure some people will think of his archetype as potentially boring, but I'm with you. That's not 
that's not boring. Uh, he can he can do a lot of things. <laughs> He's fun. Um, yes. Before, <laughs> I guess we can, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from the uh, from those guys into someone who's also I believe in this same quadrant for you, but is a very different player from Akora and Vassell, and that is Anyeke Kongwu. Am, am I right about that? Yes. Um, so the other two we talked about were wings. This is for the people who may not believe in the Hawks bigs long term. So if you or only believe in one of the two bigs, um, I count Collins as a big for yeah for Collins these purposes. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's a center, and they don't they don't treat him like one. But he's he's definitely a big. He's a, he's a combo big. Yeah, uh, which is you know its own problems. Um, yes. So for the contingent that's saying like, well, what what do I do for you know a, a potential high upside big bet? Uh, Onyeko Kongwu uh, of Chino Hills, the very same Chino Hills that had the Ball family. Um, six nine freshman uh, out of USC, um, just plays so hard. Like that has always been the thing for me that jumped out is that like the way that he runs and uh, the leverage that he plays with is just extremely impressive. Um, the production has been there. Um, you know, ten rebounds, nineteen points per thirty-six, three blocks, one point four steals, only one assist to two point three turnovers, which is not great for a big. But if you've watched USC at all this year, you know that the spacing is negligible. Um, they routinely trout out three to three and a half bigs um, in lineups, and it's not really a place for a uh, for a modern offense to really thrive. Um, the appeal with Onyeka is that he's a true switch big, um, a term that gets thrown around a lot, all similar to 3 and D, uh, where if you have one, it's the most valuable thing in the world, and there's actually only about six or seven uh, across the NBA, but everybody wants one. Uh, here he is. Uh, he can hedge out to, you know, play the defense that you would like to use against a Steph Curry or a Trey. Um, he can then turn and sprint back um, as hard as he possibly can and affect the shot at the rim. Uh, plays well out of short rolls, um, sort of a perfect pairing, as we talked about with the Kuro. Uh, has touch, great footwork, love, wonderful spin move. Um, Another person, just huge thighs, strong dude. Not going to knock him anywhere. Uh, measurables aren't fantastic. Uh, I think that he's a plus six, but I could be wrong. Um, I don't have the official measurement in front of me, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, a guy who's a plus in pretty much everything on his tankathon uh, profile, except for assists and assisted turnovers. Um, otherwise, just a consistently positive player in about every respect. Yeah, I think you know what you just described basically is a, a fantastic modern big man. I think that's what he profiles as. I like him quite a bit. Um, people, I'm sure, are worried about the measurables. Like you said, he's not. Um, we're not. We're not going to. We're not going to go down the Wiseman path. But he, he's not seven one with seven six wingspan, um, and that's that's a knock that you often hear about a Kongwu. And I think he is a five. Um, but it's it's one of those things where he's just a modern player. Uh, he's versatile. He can he's scalable I think he's just someone that I've always really liked um you know it's it's kind of tough in Atlanta because of all the investments that they made um in the front court at the deadline in February to go out and get a real starting center in Capella even Deadman you still have Collins etc but um certainly I've made it known that at a certain point I would still take a Kongwu um especially if he's the best player remaining on your board I think there's nothing wrong with uh, investing in him, um, you know, worst case, you know, quote unquote worst case scenario, he's 
really good and you have to make a decision uh, in your front court. That's not that's not the worst thing in the world. Um, you can still have trade value either on him or on somebody else. Um, and, you know, if he doesn't pan out in a huge, huge way, I think he would be a great third big at, at the very least. So I, I, I still be, would be totally fine if the Hawks thought that he was the best player available to just go ahead and, and invest in him. I think he does make a lot of sense there. Um, do you worry about any of his game? I, I've heard people mention, you know, a couple of times um, this season, I know there was the Isaiah, the Isaiah Stewart game uh, and then maybe another couple where he was kind of physically outmatched and maybe that's a, a bit of a worry. I don't worry about that too much given the modern NBA, but, you know, if he's got to go up against Joel Embiid, it might be, it might be trouble. Yeah, um, the NBA is always a moving target. Um, yeah. We're plotting towards developments that haven't occurred yet and I think that a lot of the NBA that the Hawks will make the playoffs for won't have as many of the players that give on Yekka trouble. Um, like Joe is always going to be there, but you can find another extremely large human to, you know, take up fouls against Joe. <laughs> um, that being said, even if you take on Yekka and, you know, the bigs, you know, play out the string on their contracts or you have to package them. This is a player who will remain extremely valuable because fives with ball skills are going to be insanely valuable in the NBA going forward. And while if he could win layup lines the way that Wiseman does, like he would probably be a number one pick. Unfortunately, um, there are some drawbacks. Um, he's probably going to need to shoot at least a little bit. I like his touch. Um, 720 free throw percentage. It's sort of in line with um, what he's done historically. Um, but, you know, he's got a nice variety of little floaters, little baby hooks that lead me to believe that shooting is pretty likely for him. Um, and when you combine that with the other, you know, uh, ball skills that he has and coordination skills that he has, um, it just seems to me that you're going to get a modern big man whose flaws are pretty easily pasted over with solid roster construction. I, yeah, I, I think the shooting, it would be very nice if it progresses a little bit. And I do think it might, um, I don't think he's ever going to be like super super dynamic as a shooter, but I think that's a weapon that he could certainly use. Uh, if it doesn't happen, I think it'll still be he could he could still quite easily succeed without it, but it, it will cap a little bit of uh, his flexibility to a certain extent. But I uh, I'm with you on that. I I, I don't know. I, I really like him. I kind of I'm not. I'm, t- I'm probably talking about him a little bit less than I would be if the Hawks had not got out in their dress center. But uh, it's not all fit. I mean, I think. You know whether you believe this or not, Travis Link has said repeatedly that he's not going to draft for fit um, at the top of the draft. Um, that's kind of debatable in the way that you frame that, as we've sort of discussed. Fit can mean a lot, a lot, a lot of different things, and what they did last year was uh, at least clearly somewhat motivated by fit, I think, in the draft. But at the same time, um, they're on record again, and uh, if you think that a guy that may not be the most on-paper fit is, your, is the best player available, uh, you can still take him. An NBA team potentially not telling the truth about who they want to draft or their philosophy? Why, I would never. Wouldn't that be shocking, especially for, especially uh, at that point? I believe that, that quote was about five months before the draft, or four months before the draft, four and a half. Yeah, it's uh, not, a, not, not, not a surprising development. Um, we've got a few more guys to discuss in general. Um, I, I think right there is, I'll speak for myself for now, and we'll, we'll get into what you think in a second. I think the six guys we talked about so far are... Uh, are my top six. Um, and that is not necessarily a, a hard and fast thing. 
but uh, that was not a coincidence, I don't think. But we, we can we can move on uh, to the uh, to the final two quadrants, and we'll talk about some guys that I haven't talked about a ton. Um, but actually, I think of, it's good that we are talking about them. So again, and uh, for the final time, I'm going to let you choose which one we go to next, because then the last decision will uh, we, we will have already made. All right. So now we are in the positive sections of uh, of the camps of what are the hawks do, you know at right now so it's, ba- we will it's go- basically if, if you love the hawks core already this is the this is, yeah, this this is what is, you want um so the we'll go to the bottom left conjurate which is uh we need uh we the hawks need a player to be good now so this is and i, I can't believe i'm gonna say this work traffic flank would be lying and you draft her best fit yeah <laughs> uh let's start with denny abdia he is he is often uh, associated with fit discussions that I have heard, and uh, it it makes sense. Not that other guys can't fit here, and that's that's important to, to just say out loud. It's not that the guys we talked about before are are bad fits. It's that uh, this is this would be more of a designed fit, perhaps. Yeah, this would be the category for people who are fit above all else. Yes, um, well said. So, Avdia um, is. Uh, uh, an Israeli forward, uh, he plays for Maccabi Tel Aviv, uh, averaging uh, 14.9 points, 7.6 rebounds, 3.2 assists, 1.1 blocks, uh, a steal, and 2.3 turnovers per 36. Uh, he's your pretty modern combo forward. Um, you have ball skills on offense. Um, he flashes some initiation. He flashes some uh, passing. He self-creates for him uh, at youth levels. Um, there's rotational defense. Uh, he makes Twitter videos of him shooting in an open gym. <laughs> and he makes all the shots in those videos. Yes, he does. Another amazing surprise. Uh, hey, listen, he, 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 made a, he made a lot of shots uh, in the last like week and a half, and now everyone's decided that he can shoot. So there you go. Uh, so yeah, the reason why this would be uh, a fit above above all else is that um, if if there is a movement away from heliocentrism with Trey, I know there is a section of the uh, the Hawks fans that think that there should be a more movement based offense and that Trey and Herder should be run off split cuts. Um, there should be more pin downs, you know a a motion as the sixth player on the court system where Trey doesn't have as much burden in his handle, doesn't burn out as much, doesn't take him as many hits. If you're going to a more motion-based system, Denny is the perfect fit for that because he comes from a motion-based system. He, you know, is a little bit too quick for fours. He's a little bit too strong for threes. Um, he has, you know, the ability to catch and shoot um, to what degree is a little bit debatable. Um, and he has, you know, a, a legitimate ability to read a tilted defense as a passer. So if there is the idea that to make this team successful immediately, you move to a more motion-based scheme, then Denny is, you know, about as drag and drop as you can get. And you can sort of tinker with um, the rest of the guys. He, he, you know, you could put five, you could put Capella next to him as a five. Um, you could play him at the threesome and then put Herder in. Like there's a lot of tinkering options for you know a team who would chose to move that way yeah i mean denny is a guy i i like i i like the thought of what he can be i think he 
is probably underrated in some ways. I think he's a, a better athlete than people think he is, for instance. Like, I think he does a lot of things well, and I'm, I'm actually fairly confident he's going to be an NBA player that is useful. Um, where I struggle is on the upside kind of thing, and not that you have to have you know off the charts upside to be a like the number seven pick in the draft, but I, that's where I really don't see it a lot. And yeah, if the shot goes in, it's going to help quite a bit. But am, am I wrong about this? Like, do I? What, what am I not seeing if I'm looking for the way that Denny becomes? I don't. I'm, I'm trying to not even like. What's the path for Denny to become like a top sixty player in the league? I don't see it either. Yeah, that, that's uh, kind of my argument. I, I just not that I, I'm not trying to go like really negative because yeah, if the Hawks drafted Denny at like seven or eight, I would think that was perfectly fine. But it's not. I just don't see a lot of upside. And you, you get into conversations where you see I've seen Denny as high as like number two in a mock draft in certain places, and I just don't. I don't get it honestly on that front. Um, I mean, the people that have Denny that high really believe it is self creation, and I do not. Um, he has fostered the Luka Doncic comparison just because he takes a lot of step backs. Um, and, you know, there's some Gallinari as well because, you know, his height. But unlike those two guys, he can't get easy shots. His handle is not there. His explosiveness really isn't there. Um, he's a good athlete. You know, he sprints really hard. He's, like, legitimately really fast. Um, he can get up quickly, but he can't get up super high. Um, he's more of a horizontal side to side athlete, but it doesn't come off in the liquidity that's really needed to, you know, get out of a two move combo and get by somebody. Um, a lot of times he reminds me of hurt cam reddish, um, Hmm. where it's like, I don't see the step. And, uh, if he can't shoot, which is, uh, an ongoing conversation, um, and he struggles to get to the free throw line where he is also a 55% free throw shooter for this year. And that's a pretty historical number. Um, where it hovers in the mid fifties, there's like a mental block that, uh, it can't like, it has to change because there's the history of people shooting that low and being successful players. is essentially just Bruce Bowen. Um, <laughs> I think that with Denny, the, the route to upside is that he, his body transforms. He becomes, you know, a person who can create offense, the jumper fixes, um, and because of those factors, he can leverage his, you know, ability to read a t- tilted defense into, um, into you know, on-ball creation. And for me, that's too much. And I think that this is a fit if the Hawks decide to move on from Lloyd Pierce um, and install a more motion-based scheme, um, go to, you know, something that is more Warriors-y um, and want to try to make a push now with the young pieces they have or, you know, instill towards a winning culture immediately. Um, instead of, you know, letting this percolate for a little bit longer. Um, I think that Denny is a perfectly reasonable choice. Um, he's probably going to help winning. Uh, he's a really fiery personality and has a, a pretty legendary um, work ethic. I just don't particularly... Uh, his archetype scares me, and his profile scares me. Um, that isn't to say that he's going to be a bad NBA player. He's just... There are so many conditions on how I would find him valuable for the Hawks, um, as an upside play, and I'm a person who is willing to have large misses in exchange for potentially reaching uh, outsized upside. So for me, this is um, one that, without you know, pretty drastic changes and uh, a faith in pretty difficult to develop skills developing, uh, 
it would probably click into place. I just don't know if it, the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah, I. That's well said. We'll we'll, we'll leave it there because we could go talk in a circle. I think we're pretty much on the same page with Denny. Um, is there anybody else in that sort of uh, obviously different kind of player? Because Denny's kind of a kind of a player that's almost all of his own in this uh, in this top ten or so. Anybody else in that in that quadrant for you? Yeah, for the for the plug and play fit above all else, uh, Tyrese Maxey. Um, I like Tyrese okay. Maxey. The hate's gone too far. That's my that's my first my, my opening salvo is that I don't get why Tyrese Maxey is now like in the teen in the, in the mid teens and mocks. I don't I don't get that. Um, I mean, I think the biggest divide for draft people is among people who really value um, pre college and people who only you know yep. who take who look a little bit at pre college, but um, mostly take the college sample because uh, pre the people who value pre-college you know who look at his time at south garland to people who look at his eybl stats um to me these numbers at kentucky don't really mean that much because i've seen that dude shoot the lights out on really difficult shots like he, he was like a 35 percent three-point shooter on like really 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 tough shot selection in eybl and you know a cold streak in a pretty difficult place doesn't really stand out to me um for the people who just look at kentucky they see something entirely different they see somebody who shot 29% from three who, you know, was in a role where he's a one. Is he a two? What do I make of his physical characteristics? Who does he guard? And in that, you sort of have a, uh, a sphinx of perception. Yeah, I, I, it's a good point about the, the pre-college. And I think Kentucky is also its own weird situation. Not always, but Kentucky often... Uh, mutes certain things that guys do and don't do um, and it works at the college level and obviously they uh, they recruit like crazy and all that stuff but there there is a history of Kentucky guys maybe having skills that they don't uh, display all that well in college for reasons beyond their control but yeah I, I like I like Maxie I mean the fit uh, going back to like why he's in this in this place I, I guess why do you put in there because you know he is a He's a combo guard type for sure, and I think people are going to immediately say, "Well, can he can he play next to Trey Young?" Uh, so that's uh, I guess the question that I'll pose to you. Um, so I would say that Maxi slides because people view him as a primary, where I view him as an overqualified secondary. Um, when Maxi can read a tilted defense, he makes good reads. Um, Maxi has a just a phenomenal floater. Um, you know, eighty percent plus free throw shooter, wide body, good finisher. Um, to me, he seems like somebody that you could slide in next to Trey as at a two and then, you know, could also be either a secondary or a small usage primary in lineups where either Trey's not there or you're running Trey off ball. Um, I think that Maxi would be a good bet if you are a believer in Cam Reddish, the uh, creator. Yep. And then you can click in Maxi at Again, I'm a person who really believes in Maxi shooting because the form doesn't bother me. I think that there's like one or two little tweaks. And again, a guy with really good off-the-court indicators about work ethic, a guy who really thinks the game at a high level, um, uh, by all accounts, a wonderful leader, um, just somebody that you could get really excited about the person in addition to the perspective that he brings. Um, and with the specific mix of... Uh, of tools that the, the Hawks have could really unlock other areas of people while he's not the most exciting guy that you're going to find um, in the way that Mellow or Hayes are. 
he unlocks a lot of things without taking too much off the table. Um, and I also think that he could potentially take some of the one defensive responsibilities off Trey and let Trey roam on uh, the worst defender on the floor more. Uh, because I think Maxi is somebody who embraces uh, the challenge, and that's going to be an, uh, a character or a personality characteristic the Hawks are going to need next to Trey in the backcourt. I'm just so glad the fireworks are back more than anything. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, no, I I actually think it would work with Maxi. Uh, how much of an investment you want to make in that is up for debate. I like him probably better a little a little bit better in some other places, but I'm closer to where you are. I just um, yeah, I think I, I don't worry about the shooting. And if you assume he's going to be a pretty good shooter, um, there's a lot to like in that um, profile. I'm not like in love with the Atlanta fit or anything, but I think it would be perfectly reasonable if you get down to the lower outcomes uh, of, the, of the lottery for the Hawks or if they were, were to trade down, et cetera. I wouldn't be taking him in the top three or four of the Hawks, um, but he's still someone to uh, not cross off. And uh, again, I'm on record as saying he's, he's falling way too far in stuff that I've seen recently. Um, go ahead. Yeah, for me, Maxi is somebody that you really start looking at around seven. Yep. Um, because you know, uh, one or two of the bigs will go, the primaries will go, and then you know, some of the wings, depending on how the um the lottery shakes out, and you're sort of left in a, a spot where you do you take you know these very large swings, which is something we're about to talk about, or do you <laughs> take somebody that can kind of unlock a lot, a few of the more subtle skills, and then bet on development. And I think that's an interesting strategy because the Hawks have um, taken some interesting developmental choices in terms of the wings that they've gone after. Um, and, you know, the, the mix doesn't quite connect, in my opinion. Like, the skills of Cam don't quite blend in perfectly with the skills of Herder, DeAndre, uh, Collins. Like, there's a small piece in having somebody with the, you know, the more weird game of, to, to put it, I guess, uh, with a point uh, of Maxi, you know, who has floaters, takes a lot of stuff off the dribble, um, you know, is good at, at reading a tilted defense. Like that's something that can kind of connect some of those pieces um, in a way that other prospects may not be able to do without, you know, taking on huge usage. Yeah. So you you alluded. It's kind of funny that you put it this way, but I uh, you you alluded to some uh, some guys that are bigger swings that we'll talk about now to end the podcast, and I laugh because I think two of them are not considered to be swingy prospects uh, in a vacuum because they're one of them is very old and the other one is not a one and done. Um, but uh, let's just start with uh, Obi Toppin and Tyrese Halliburton and whatever word you would like to talk about them. Yeah, so this is uh, this is quadrant four. This is the Hawks have four or more players who are going to play a significant role on their next playoff team. So let's just take the biggest swings possible because it doesn't matter if they're good now. We'll just, you know, put it in the bag and we'll see how it shakes out in the playoffs. Um, Obi Toppin uh, is a bet on all offense everything. Uh, he's probably the best player in college basketball last year. Uh, 6'9 power forward. He's already 22. He did a prep year and redshirted. Um, about the best offensive season that you could look for from, you know, a combo four. Um uh, Shot 39% from three, averaged 22 points per 36, eight rebounds, had you know uh, an even assist to turnover, a block and a steal, held an almost 30 usage rate, had a true shooting of 68, uh, finishes everything around the rim. You know, if you're thinking, let's just get as many offensive weapons, put them on the floor, and let Trey Young uh, orchestrate. 
to his heart's desire. Obi Toppin is, you know, somebody who's going to require a little bit of scheming on offense and a little cross matching on defense. But you're going to win games, you know, 155 to 152. <laughs> yeah, I mean, entertainment wise uh, and offense, offense focus wise, uh, Toppin is, you know, a good offensive player. There's no question about it. I, I made a comment. I think it was either last week or earlier this week that if you you could sell me. I'm not sure I would make this point for sure, but you could probably sell me on the safest half of the floor in the entire draft, maybe being Obi's offense. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make that point. I think there are probably some, a couple of others, but he's that would be up there. Uh, Obi's Obi's going to be a, a pretty good offensive player. I'm I'm pretty confident in that. Could be even better than pretty good. Obviously, um, the other end of the floor is just it's terrifying. And I, I, I mean, I I say that um, I'm going to rely on you for this podcast to to explain why you think that is. But because uh, I, I get to push back sometimes, like, well, how bad can he be defensively? And it's like, well, it, it could be bad. It, it may not be. It may not be like there's a path for it to not be absolutely terrible. But there's a chance where he's given a lot of what he, uh, a lot of the gains could be given back on defense. Um. Yeah. So I'm of the Diana Taurasi school that like bigs are bad, um, that they can't do anything <laughs> cool. So I try to like not watch bigs actively. Um, this year I. May, uh, I create a series uh, about big defense to explain why bigs are often bad. And the first category was just the people who are truly awful on defense. And that's Isaiah Stewart and Obi Toppin. Uh, went through every pick and roll coverage that NBA teams, or the top seven pick and roll coverages NBA teams run, and explained why it'd be difficult for them to do that and what you can expect for them to do at an NBA level. Um, I think there's one coverage that Obi Toppin could probably reasonably run. That's going to be ice. Um, ice is, uh, you know, you pinch down the sides uh the big drops diagonally rather than back you're trying to keep everything flat towards the baseline push into a uh, uh, free throw line or below dribbles off the jumper uh, not a particularly efficient shot and not a shot that you can really scream scheme towards um the issue is that obi Toppin can't backpedal like at all he can't change direction he can't backpedal um which are two physical traits that are pretty important um he's a really high leaper but he's a really slow loader so that means that it's difficult for him to go from a slide to a jump quickly um so a lot of aggressive coverages are going to be difficult because he can't really turn and run um there are so many physical issues that prevent him from being an effective uh defender as a as a pick and roll defender um it's not better if you play him at the four um because he doesn't really slide his feet particularly well he's not fast he has high hips like there there's a lot um i don't want to say it's as bad as the draft express julio okafor thing um <laughs> but like it's close like i think that anyone who says well it's not that bad like should really just go through the pick and roll reels and try to figure out what exactly you think that a team can do and then think about what you surround him with and if the answer is like well you just have you know a a stretch big who also block shots, uh, two good wing defenders, and then you know a point guard who can get in passing lines. Like congratulations, you described the 2013 Spurs. That yeah, you very- <laughs> it's a good point. I, I, yeah, I think in general, and we're late enough to the podcast. I could probably say this. When people, maybe people have stopped listening. Uh, I think in general, fans don't understand how how dam how damaging bad defense is from bigs, like because they'll just. At some point, there is a segment of basketball watching population that is just going to look at his at his box score stats and basically assume that there's nothing that he could do defensively to erase that. And I I, I sort of understand where that point comes from, but uh, there, there's a reason why 
big man spots now in the modern NBA are referred to as defensive positions um, more than anything else. Like, you know, Car- yes, Carl Anthony Towns can make up for his bad defense by being the best shooting center of all time and being completely ridiculous on offense. And if Obi Toppin becomes Carl Anthony Towns on offense, then sure. But uh, that's a how high many bar to clear. <laughs> how many playoff career wins does Carl Anthony Towns have? That That's also true. Uh, the okay. one time – uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would give you the – without going too into the Towns thing, I, I would tell you that Towns has not been given a ton to work with. And the one time that he did have something to work with, they were pretty good. But I'm with you. Like, it's it's tough to win if your center is that bad on defense. Uh, even yeah. even if your center is Carl Anthony Towns, who, again, who's like historically awesome on offense, which Obi probably won't be. A, <laughs> I don't even mean that as slander against Towns. I mean that as no. like you realize that like it becomes – when you think about how good Carl Anthony Towns is and you still can't like – get to the playoffs that speaks to how damaging the archetype is unto itself that you basically have to hit on everything else and you have to have the right scheme and like again ice is not going to be popular like ice is a somewhat archaic scheme most people are going to play milwaukee drop like that is going to be the style of about the next four to five years or they're going to play super high hedge and obi can't do either one of those so you're asking to spend a pick on a player who will use a scheme that your best player is not really adapted to um, that you may not have the pieces around for. And to get all of that, you're getting a player who like had an, a, a year that was fantastic, but it was also in, you know, an offense that's miles ahead of what everything else happens in college basketball. Like the Dayton offense could not have possibly been yeah. better for Obi. And it's, you know, something that is, uh, compared to the rest of it, like it's from the future. So yeah, teams, just not, can't that's prepare. not his fault, but it's, uh, that's important. Like, it's not his fault, but he was put in a perfect situation. That's just that's what it is. Um, and on top of all of what we just said, it's also a bad fit because the Hawks have John Collins <laughs> already. Like, so even if you ignored everything else, and uh, I still don't, I don't really know how Obi's supposed to fit in with this current Hawks roster. Um, if you were to, I made this point before, but if you were to, if you were to assume the Hawks were going to trade John Collins. It becomes a little bit easier, but even then, uh, the 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 issues with Ob don't change. It's just that the fit would be a little bit better. So, yeah, you just have more Ob minutes to potentially figure out what you're going to do with your organization around a you know a high level offensive big, which is a problem that the Hawks have tried to solve and failed to solve recently. Yeah, I'm in. I've said before, I think if Obi got to be as as good as John Collins is right now defensively, that would be a huge win for Obi. And John is not, and John Collins is not a fantastic defensive player. So, uh, how old is John Collins, by the way? Uh, the same age as Obi Toppin. Okay, that's a little concerning to me. Yeah. So, there's that. Okay, we'll we'll move on before we get people mad at us. Um, oh yeah, Tyrese Halliburton. This is a guy who I I'm guilty of not talking about a lot because I uh, I I like him in a in a in, sort of in theory, but he's not a guy that I love in terms of Hawk stuff. But uh, what, what do you what do you make of him? Uh, by the way, Iowa State guy, Tyrese Halliburton, because I know I have not talked about him a lot. Yeah, Tyrese Halliburton is another um, under-recruited guy who developed dramatically in his time um, in college, uh, two-year player at Iowa State. 6'5", like 180, I guess, um, from Wisconsin. Shout out to Wisconsin. Um the pitch here is that he is sort of in this uh, connector guard idea where they don't really make mistakes. They knock down open threes and they're capable of really, really making high level reads. Um, 
he's like Lamella Ball if Lamella could Lamella Ball couldn't really dribble and really could shoot. It's a strange archetype, and it's one that I'm not certain the Hawks need. But in a world where the Hawks have another high-level creator, suddenly this archetype becomes fantastically valuable. If they have two, you mean? Already. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's sort of the challenge. Tyrese Halliburton is somebody that I really enjoy watching playing basketball. I mean, he has uh, he has a habit that would drive every uh, middle school, high school, and probably college coach insane, where he jumps and then stares at the defender who has to make a read and waits for them to be wrong and then throws it to a different person. And he's never wrong. Like He, he makes the right decision every single time. But if, if you were a coach, it would give you a heart attack because you're not you're taught never to jump pass. He has left-hand hooks, right-hand hooks. He'll throw, you know, wild behind the back passes, but he can't put any pressure on the rim. Uh, his free throw attempt rate is 18. That's uh not not not, not great, I don't think. It's Oh, it's awful. It's um yeah, I I feel bad cuz I like Halliburton too. I just I wor- Okay, before we get into the uh defensive side, which I want to ask you about real quick, but offensively there's this notion that he's a lead guard, and I don't, I, I don't see that as a thing. I think he needs uh, to be not that. And that's not, it's not a shot at him. I just think that you need to have him not be that role. If you're drafting him to be your primary creator, it's not going to go very well, in my opinion, just because of what you said before, like the handle's not there. I don't know if he can like create advantages for himself. Like The passing's real. He's a great passer. I just don't know if he can get to, get to the, like all that stuff without being able to like create advantages. Yeah, um, he... He's not a lead guard, full stop. He has roughly the same handle as Danny Green. Like, I think that this is um, something that uh, people want to happen. Like, I would really enjoy it if Tyrese Halberton was a, a a lead guard who could, you know, handle any level of usage. But he doesn't have the ability to get to the free throw line. He doesn't really get to the rim. Um, he doesn't even really shoot enough threes, despite being, you know, a 42% three-point shooter. There's just not the connecting pieces to make his game really be extraordinarily valuable if you don't have the proper team context for him on offense. Um, and to put him into a, uh, a lead role is just your, your team is not going to be good. Like he needs to play off at least two creators. He's a, he's a role player. I, there's nothing wrong with being a role player, but I think there's people look for every reason why a guy isn't a role player <laughs> like that's too that's that's too oversimplified oversimplified but that's kind of what i see with Halliburton is like you know because he's a good passer people assume he can be a lead guard and he's just a role player he does a lot of things well and he fits he, he'd be really helpful to a lot of teams but uh yeah making him a primary would not be advisable i don't think uh and i worry uh not wor- worry is too strong of a word i'm skeptical of his defensive impact like I think he has good feel and I think he will be a good secondary sort of help defender I'm not sure he's like a game-changing defensive player either and that that he has he also has that rep in some circles like he's a great defensive prospect and I think he's fine or better than that maybe but I don't see him as like Vassell or Cora on on defense no I mean first he's he's too late um he can't really dislodge anyone from position so if you beat if he beats you to a spot um, you can just knock him out of the way. Um, he kind of has to defend ones, um, which he's you know good at getting his hands in passing lanes. He's a predictive passer, but he's not you know uh, a plus six plus seven uh, you know 
body frame. He's really he has really high hips. He's extremely light. Like this is not the profile of um, a real guard disruptor. He's not explosive particularly. Um, he's not somebody who can go stride for stride with the quickest. He's somebody who gets by on like guile and moxie along with just this pro-natural center of the game, um, which is exciting to watch, but is also something that's really difficult to bet on as uh, as a defense, especially if your defense is one that needs a person to make a difference. If you are a good defense, he will probably make your good defense great. Yep. And that he's not going to mess up rotations, really. Um, you can put him on, you know, the third or fourth best person on the court, and he can, you know, hang out in passing lanes. But if he has to put a hand up and contest, you know, um, uh, Steph Curry jumper, he can't get to that airspace because he doesn't have the intersection of tools, of uh, of wingspan, of explosiveness to really bother that level of creator. So if you are a bad defense, he's not going to make your bad defense good. He might make your bad defense worse because he, the defense doesn't reach the threshold for him to make a, an additional impact. And that's <laughs> what he is right now. He's an additional impact guy on both ends of the floor. He's not somebody that raises the floor. He's the person that raises the ceiling. That's very well said. I, uh, I still like him. And I think I'm, it's, if he goes in the right spot, uh, he'll be a role player that is like beloved by, by nerds. Like he does a lot of things well under the radar. He'll be a sneaky guy that everybody likes, but, uh, I don't, I hope he, I kind of hope for his, not for his, I mean, if you ignore the money part, cause I want, I want all of his guys to make money. But if you ignore if you ignore the money part, it'd be good for him to fall in the draft to a good team that could use him properly. That'd be good. There um, are there are surprisingly less fits for Tyrese Halliburton um, than you would think because again, I think that it needs to be two full board creators and the list of teams that have two full board creators, multiple good wing defenders, um, and a uh, a center over top to cover up. You know what's probably going to be when he gets melted out of the way is really small. Um, if a bad team drafts him, I expect good teams to just sit there and wait for the bad team to get fed up so they can draft give a second draft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just to second draft him because he's going to be awesome at some point during his career. Just a matter of whether it's for the first team that drafts him or for the smart team. It's like, yeah, they're not going to do this right. They're going to put the ball in the sands. And then, you know, once he gets into a proper context, guys who are super smart, who make shots, uh, who are good at defensive rotations, like eventually find their way to teams where they're valuable. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, before I let you go, and uh, I appreciate all the time, we've gone long. It's holiday week. Hopefully everybody's been still listening. But uh, last guy I want to get to um, is perhaps the biggest enigma in the entire draft, uh, and that is Alexei Pokashevsky, um, who I've discussed briefly. Essentially, so far as, you know, he's the weirdest evaluation in the whole class. The competition level's bad, but uh, he does things that are completely ridiculous for his size. And uh, he's kind of the ultimate home run swing. Is that sound about right? Yeah, there might be. He's probably the ultimate. I think there's another stealthy home run swing that I might want to just sneak in a quick minute or two on at the very end. Yeah, but Alexi is uh, Alexi is super interesting. Uh, he's listed at seven feet. Uh, probably like three or four inches of that are just neck. So it's probably best to consider him as about six nine, <laughs> six ten. Uh, seven three wingspan. He plays in uh, Greek B. Um, his team Olympiakos tried to hide him because they don't want to give up on you know uh, a 17, 18 year old. They want to get more years of service out of him. Um, Greek B is where Giannis played. Uh, Giannis, when he was there, was putting up like 40, 19, 18, 6, 7, 3 stat lines. Um, and Alexi is not there. Alexi is much more flashes. Uh, he averaged 16, 12, 
uh, five, three blocks, two steals, three turnovers, roughly. That's per 36. Giannis's per 36s are almost double these numbers, for what it's worth. Um, Alexi's a 32% uh, three-point shooter on seven attempts per 36. Uh, seven, 78% free throw shooter on three attempts per 36. True shooting is 51. Three-point attempt rate is 50. Free throw rate is 20. Like, this is an extremely weird dude. He, he randomly does point guard stuff. Uh, he routinely gets run over because he weighs, I would say, at best 170 pounds. He's listed at 201, but, like, I cannot air quote that 201 enough. I mean, and Maybe. even then, even, even 201 at seven feet is extremely thin. So if, if you're saying if you're saying 170, that's that's like, I don't even know. How, I'm not even sure what the comp is to that. Like, that is there's, there's really not one. I mean, like this is this is a home run swing that you treat you treat Alexei Pokashevsky like buried treasure. Um, yeah. Which is to say that like it's G League, it's stash, it's the way that you treat it is like this is somebody who will develop later. He's the youngest player in the draft at uh, 18 and a half years old right now. Um, somebody that you know advanced footwork. You know he'd come off a pin down and clean in one step is able to turn and fire. Um, his form looks good for the most part. Um, you know, advanced dribble moves will bring up the ball pretty routinely. The competition level is low, and he still gets bullied. Um, he's not somebody who looks lost a lot, but he is somebody who looks overwhelmed a lot. And I, I know that's a so like he can think the game at a high level, but he's not able to always influence it. Um, and then you'll have flashes where you know he'll run a pick and roll, he'll make a left-handed hook pass to the corner. He'll sprint along the baseline and, and then relocate for a step back three. And you're like, what exactly am I seeing here? Um, if you are a believer that the Hawks have, you know, their guys roughly, um, that this is the core or the pieces that will trade for the core on a championship team, this is the sort of player you pick um, because he works and um, and you have a player who is wildly unique um, who unlocks a lot of uh, strange lineups that just is going to put a uh, unique pressure on a defense as you know, a unicorn is a, is an overused term, but a big guy who can really shoot, really move um, has shot blocking instincts um, and has a handle. Um, you have another unique weapon to, to sort of throw out. And if he busts, you know, he's going to be out of sight. So it's not going to take minutes from the other deve- developmental cases. Like it's not going to take cam reddish pick and roll wraps away. Um, it's not going to take Kevin Herter, you know, uh, double screen away. Yeah. It's a, um, it's definitely a boom bust proposition and where the Hawks are, you know, if they traded, if they didn't trade down, you're talking about a top seven pick and, uh, it's risky. You got You got to have job security for one thing to take a guy like this in the top seven. Um, especially when it, like, like we said before, this might, I mean, you're hoping this is the last time that you have a top seven pick for quite some time. So to have that be your final salvo um, is certainly risky, but the upside is the upside is definitely there. If it works, Um, it's going to take a while, I think, but uh, yeah, he's, he's a really weird player. I mean, it's just what it is. He's a very, very weird player. Um, I'm not even sure. I mean, but it's pretty easy to like justify. I've seen people uh, that I think are smart that have him like in their second tier as like a top 10 guy. And if you factor in the, if you really value upside, I totally get it because the upside for what he's already flashed, it could be pretty scary if it all worked. 
that, that's obviously risky. Yeah, and I think that it's one of those heightened contradictions of having multiple lottery picks is that the fans start to believe what it is they're told about the players that have been drafted. So, like, if you think that Cam Reddish is, you know, instead of being a, you know, a floor raiser who plays good defense and, you know, is a shooter, you instead believe Cam Reddish to be you know, what his high school scouting report said. Like, then you're like, oh, we already have our guys. We, do, we just want, you know, uh, a plug and play guy and we're fine. But if you sort of believe what you've seen with your eyes and you see the opposite of that, then you're like, well, we might as well just try to put, you know, uh, the best swing we can in the tuck and see what turns out. Um, I think that Poku is like at six is probably where I would start really thinking about drafting him. If I have faith in my development staff, um, again, the NBA is probably two years away from him, like being able to play a lot of minutes, but you know, the, the, he's going to be a kid that you either stash overseas for a year, you know, delaying his, um, his cap hit, or you put him on the bus between college park, um, and, and the Hawks and you just say, okay, well go do weird kid stuff. Um, you know, (laughs) in the G league. And then when you come up, you're going to have this small specific role. So, you know, you have general specific, general specific, general specific while you keep an eye on him and, you know, um, whatever, you know, Olympiacos is a, is a good, um, is a good developmental club, you know, like that's that they're routinely in Euro league, but there's nothing as good as P3 and, you know, um, an NBA training staff. And the sooner you get him, you know, to his next home where you can be like, all right, so what exactly can we do with this frame? What can we do, uh, you know, in the short term and the long term, you have such an interesting building block. And I feel like that opportunity shouldn't be squandered. Yeah. If, if they, uh, if the Hawks were to draft Poku, I think I would have to, uh, just start going to college park games instead and just start sending Zach to Hawks games and uh, just go on full time on the Poku beat. That'd be fun. Um, but yeah, he'd be, he'd be really interesting if nothing else. Uh, I'm, I'm curious now who, who's the other guy that you think is the other boom bust guy that you wanted to mention? Um, it is another Florida state player. It is Pat. Well, Oh, Pat. Well, okay. Um, so earlier we talked uh, about the three most interesting archetypes or the three most valuable archetypes in the NBA. And, uh, you know, primary is already covered. We talked about three indie wings quite a bit. Um, Pat will is, has the possibility to be a, like a big wing four. um, another just defensive monster, um, in terms of stocks and steals from Florida state. Um, he, his, if you look at his stats, he doesn't seem like a shooter, but if you value pre-college, um, if you add all the stats together, he's a 41.9% three-point shooter on like 375 attempts so while the jumper looks rudimentary that lines up with his 83 percent college free throw percentage um he's somebody who has a serious physical concern similar to poku in that his quads are overdeveloped and his hips are poor so he's a really slow mover in space but that's something that's not as present in his high school tape He's just somebody who got too big in college. And I don't think it's a fault of Florida State. He's just somebody who recruits muscle a little too quickly. And he became so quad heavy, um, which sort of limited his mobility. He is somebody who at 6'9", like, you know, a big wingspan, listed at 230, um, can make pick and roll reads, can shoot, uh, has an interesting handle, is hyper explosive, um, and block shots and makes good defensive rotations consistently 
Uh, he's the youngest American in the draft um, and went to Florida State to learn how to play hard and play defense, exact quote. Um, so he's a guy who's really interestingly wired um, and somebody who is an extremely valuable archetype who is currently in a lot of boards like in the 20s and in mocks is about 14. He's a ludicrous athlete. Um, I feel like he's the person most likely to be able to jump out of a pool. Um, <laughs> he missed a lot of dunks this year because he decided to like freak them. Like he'd be a putback and he's like, oh, I could just dunk it or I could try to pull it as far back as possible and dunk it. And he did the latter a lot, which is a mentality I really appreciate. Um, it may not show up on the scoreboard, just a kid who just wants to play hard and like throw the ball through the rim as hard as humanly possible. Um, there's a lot of uh, developmental meat on the bone. Another person who you know was a he's a he was a five star coming into to Florida State, but he wasn't recruited by the Blue Bloods, um, despite being from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, so he flew a little bit under the radar. Um, but if you believe in the work that uh, Atlanta's done with Cam on his lateral movement, um, and you believe in their physio staff and their development staff, like this is the most valuable archetype. Uh, with you know the mentality towards defense with some pretty low-hanging fruit developmentally and a super high ceiling. Um, another person that maybe needed to bring a lot along a little slower. But if you believe that this is the group that you know could click together, uh, a big-bodied four who can shoot, uh, play super hard, and really wants to play defense um, while being a ludicrous athlete is an interesting bet at like eight. Yeah, I can see him in that range. I mean, I, I've not talked about him a ton for the Hawksers because they probably need to trade down to be in that range. But yeah, I he's intriguing. Um, the up, the you know, the athleticism and the way that uh, the little flashes. He was not as consistent as you would want him to be on film. But you know, he's young, like you said. Like he, you know, if you're youngest American in the draft, uh, there's that sort of explanation for. Uh, some inconsistencies that you might have seen. And then the Florida State evaluation is also interesting as well. So I'm glad you mentioned him because I uh, would not have thought to, but that, that makes a lot of sense now that you say it. Um, we've covered a lot of ground. We've spent a lot of time. I appreciate you giving me a ton of time. Um, if you have any final thoughts, please feel free to offer them. And if not, I want you to plug all your stuff because I've been, uh, been diving into some stuff and uh, a lot of lot of really, really good in-depth content that you've, you've mentioned some of so far. But please tell people where they, where they can find all your work. Yeah, um, I just, you know, I, I today, I feel like my main goal was to hit all of the um, factions of what is this team. And I feel like we did a good job of that. Um, I feel like the Hawks are probably the most interesting team in the NBA from a developmental perspective right now. Um, because you have a heliocentric player, you have, you know, a center, and then you have a whole bunch of questions on exactly what is valuable. Um, so I feel like more than any team floor uh more than any team hawks fans get to ask really important philosophical questions about basketball um uh, and so i just wanted to thank you for for having me on uh to to really get deep into uh what is valuable for this specific group of guys um uh, you can follow me on twitter at uh, above the break three um i have a patreon where i write uh extremely long-winded scouting breakdowns for every player uh, or every wing in this class uh, right now of the guys that we've talked about. I have Akuro, Vassell, Denny, uh, Hallie, and Pat with Poku coming, I think, next week. Um, and uh, that's uh, something that you can click through uh, on my Twitter profile. 
Uh, it's on Patreon, but everything's free. Toss me up a couple bucks if you can. If you can't, times are hard. I understand. A share is just as good. Um, if you want to learn more about the defense stuff, I regrettably wrote about Biggs. Um, the <laughs> next version of that should be out this week. Uh, that series is called Slow Feet Don't Eat. Um, the first two covered were uh, Stewart and uh, Toppin, and I have the next set coming out next week. Um, I write about uh, usually uh, high school and draft, um, and usually with the the idea that um, skills don't all develop the same and that you need to evaluate players through the lens of what you think is fixable and what you think is essential. Um, and uh, yeah, I just want to thank you again for having me on. I really appreciate this. No, thank you for uh, all the time. This is, this is a lot of fun for me. I, I learn I learn things and uh, I think you're uh, definitely very underfollowed. So people should be following your, your stuff if they're, if they're not already. So thanks for all of the time today. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast. Please check out PD's work as well. And we'll see everybody next time.